America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. It's about the mind, mood, and the brain. Anything about human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness and insights into its causes. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and better educating the general public about mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back to this edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, October the 5th, 2016. And there has been a lot of talk in the past few years about ketamine. Ketamine, if you don't know, is a chemical used in certain uh, anesthesia procedures. It uh, is also in a different form, widely abused and misused as a sort of designer club drug with uh, the nickname Special K. And while it is efficient as an anesthetic, and uh, it is also a very powerful and potent hallucinogen, hence its uh, abuse as a club drug. And a few years ago, some researchers discovered that if you give someone who's clinically depressed an intravenous dose of ketamine, then lo and behold, their mood improves immediately, in minutes or hours, as opposed to what happens with antidepressant medications that you take orally, which takes at least days and usually weeks. Um, the average antidepressant starts to bring out noticeable improvements in as little as, say, 10 days to two weeks. But, you know, that's on the optimistic side. Sometimes they can take much, much longer. So understandably, there was a great deal of excitement about ketamine and its potential usefulness as a treatment for depression, that we could get people who are deeply and profoundly depressed, even suicidal, to start feeling better right away, <clears throat> even smiling, laughing, feeling happy, like they never felt with or from medication. A lot of this enthusiasm led to ketamine clinics, which proliferated, where patients would go to have these intravenous treatments with ketamine. 
uh, this is not covered by insurance because it's not an FDA approved treatment and indeed uh, no drug company is selling it for that purpose. Uh, they can't uh, because it would be illegal. Uh, but intravenous ketamine is out there. It's being used for other things. Uh, so it can be administered to patients as long as they consent to it. Now, I was not one of the voices who joined in the enthusiasm for this new potential groundbreaking treatment for depression. After all, it is not safe or practical to repeatedly administer this drug to patients with major depression in hopes of getting and keeping them well. Why not? Because of the side effects it has. Very dangerous side effects. Patients who have these intravenous infusions have to be monitored very closely to guard against any adverse cardiovascular side effects, uh, heart rate, blood pressure. Also, it is a hallucinogen. It is what is called psychotic mimetic, meaning it can induce hallucinations. It can induce a psychotic state, as can marijuana, by the way, but that's another story. Um, so while it's very, very important and fascinating that ketamine can relieve depression, we have to study this a different way instead of like, oh, okay, we'll just give depressed patients IV ketamine, they'll feel better. Instead, the better approach, which is being taken by many, many, many different scientists, well, what is it about ketamine that relieves depression, and is there something we can do that's similar but safer to give these patients relief from their depression. Now that is being worked on. Uh, I talked on the podcast several months back about how scientists at the National Institutes of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, that's our government health research arm, are looking at this. They have narrowed down what about the ketamine molecule helps to alleviate depression and they're experimenting with a different form of it that will not give you the psychotomimetic effects or hallucinogenic effects. So, uh, you know, that seems promising. But much as I sounded like an isolated naysayer, my opinion was that this was just one of another line of these hallucinogenic drugs that certain doctors touted as being helpful for psychiatric patients and even would enhance the benefits of psychotherapy. There have been doctors talking about this as far back as the 60s when LSD was looked at for this purpose. That's right, acid. Um, acid and mushrooms and ecstasy later on. These are all illegal, highly abused, and misused, extremely and severely dangerous drugs that some psychiatrists over the years have touted as uh, things that will benefit people and even improve the outcome in psychotherapy. 
Sorry, but ketamine is no different. It's just one in another line of these drugs. Yes, it will give some people some blessed relief for a few minutes, but then when it wears off, they're right back where they started from and potentially have been taking in a substance that is toxic to their brain, a brain which is already compromised because of the effects of depression. So that being the case with uh, my firmly taking an extremely contrarian stance on the use of ketamine in the treatment of depression, uh, I found an article that explains this in a little bit better way. I should also say that there are other medical uses for ketamine. Ketamine is now often being prescribed in pain clinics where people are suffering from extremely debilitating and disabling chronic pain such that it is seriously adversely affecting their quality of life and they have not been able to get any relief from any other treatment. So while, while I am extremely skeptical about using it to treat depression, uh, I will not and cannot comment, well I, I could but I choose not to comment on intravenous ketamine as a treatment for chronic pain, that not being within the bounds of my specialty and having no expertise in that area. So, but I want to mention that in the case that any of you listening yourselves or any of anyone that you know is receiving this as a treatment for chronic pain. I mean, yes, there needs to be the same concern about potential side effects, like I mentioned, as far as uh, hallucinations, psychotic symptoms, and cardiovascular side effects. But as far as its effectiveness, as far as the appropriateness of using that as a treatment for chronic pain, something that I uh, should not and will not comment on. Just going to restrict my comments to use of ketamine as a potential treatment for depression, which again, I do not think it is. I think instead it points the way toward exploring what safer medicines may work similarly. Now, the article I came across is about alcohol, a very much older substance and uh, one that we're very familiar with in terms of its effects on the body and the brain and on mood, and of which there is, at least should not be, uh, nearly as much controversy. Uh, it turns out some... Wake Forest researchers have found that alcohol is shown to act in the same way as these rapid antidepressants. Uh, so the article asks, can having a few drinks help people with clinical depression feel better? And their answer is yes, at least in terms of biochemistry. Now before we go any further, Self-medication with alcohol is an extremely common problem in any kind of mental illness, including depression. And 
The problem with it is instead of helping you feel better, well, it may do that while you're acutely under the influence of the alcohol, but in fact, alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. So while you may feel better while you're acutely under its influence, ultimately the net effect of using alcohol if you're depressed is to make the depression worse. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Uh, so this tendency to self-medicate buys someone a little time of relief. Then after that, they're not only right back where they started, but maybe even worse off. And the point of the article is that they found that alcohol produces these same types of rapid antidepressant type effects as other chemicals that have been looked at recently including ketamine and uh, in my point of view this just drives home the point that while these abusable drugs may buy some relief quickly they're not the answer more on all of this when we get back from our first commercial break you're listening to psychiatry today with dr scott be right back perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction if not you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Now, in a study published in the current issue of the journal Nature Communications, researchers found that alcohol produces the same neural and molecular changes 
as drugs that have been proven to be rapidly effective antidepressants. <clears throat> okay, now the researchers are going to be the first ones to say, hold the phone. We're not saying drinking alcohol is a way to solve depression. There are too many adverse consequences to drinking. And like we talked about right before the break, ultimately alcohol worsens depression. And the uh, study's principal investigator, Kimberly Rab Graham, said because of the high comorbidity uh, between major depressive disorder and alcoholism, what she means is that they occur together frequently. That's uh, comorbidity. There is the widely recognized self-medication hypothesis, suggesting that depressed individuals may turn to drinking as a means to treat their depression. And Dr. Rab Graham is uh, at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. She says, we now have biochemical and behavioral data to support that hypothesis. But this does not at all suggest that alcohol can be regarded as an effective treatment for depression. And she says there's definitely a danger in self-medicating with alcohol. There's a very fine line between it being helpful and harmful. And at some point during repeated use, self-medication turns into addiction. Now, in their study, which used an animal model, Dr. Rab Graham and her colleagues found that a single dose of an intoxicating level of alcohol, which has been shown to block NMDA receptors, uh, these are these receptors are proteins associated with learning and memory, uh, worked in conjunction with the autism-related protein FMRP to transform an amino acid called GABA from an inhibitor to a stimulator of neural activity. In addition, the research team found that these biochemical changes resulted in the non-depressive behavior lasting at least 24 hours. Okay, let's pull this apart and explain a little bit better NMDA receptors work via the neurotransmitter glutamate. Uh, If you've heard of any neurotransmitters at all, these are the chemical hormone-like substances that help regulate functions in the brain. You may have heard of serotonin and also norepinephrine and dopamine. Those are heavily involved in regulation of mood, for example. But glutamate is also very important. And the NMDA receptor is where ketamine is very active. And you may or may not have heard of GABA. That stands for gamma aminobutyric acid. It is an amino acid. It is also a neurotransmitter in the brain. And foolishly, it is sold over the counter as a supplement, thinking it might do something to relieve anxiety Uh, Please do not waste your money on this. There is no way that taking exogenous GABA will do anything. Uh, It can't just uh, go into the brain from ingesting it orally and have any benefits. 
And what they're talking about is whereas GABA is usually an inhibitory neurotransmitter, in other words, it usually shuts down or calms down the brain cells in certain pathways in the brain, what these researchers found is that they could get GABA to stimulate neural activity. Well, it was in an animal model, and so what they found was that alcohol stimulated this biochemical pathway in the animals, same as the rapid type antidepressants, and produced behavioral effects that show antidepressant effect. Uh, how do you do this in an animal who can't tell you how happy or sad they are? Well, scientists years ago came up with a test that they say reliably predicts whether a chemical will relieve depression in humans. They put rodents in uh, something called a forced swim test. Uh, rodents who tend toward depression will stop swimming when they realize they can't get out of this tub that they're in. And uh, those who are not depressed or have been successfully treated with antidepressant chemicals will keep swimming and keep trying to get out of the tub a lot longer. Sounds simple-minded, even silly, but believe it or not, this is shown to be uh, reliably analogous to treatment of depressed behavior in humans. Now, in recent years, the article points out, single doses, like we talked about before, of rapid antidepressants like ketamine have proven capable of relieving depressive symptoms within hours and lasting for up to two weeks, even in individuals who are resistant to traditional antidepressants. And Dr. Rab Graham says, while additional research is needed in this area, our findings do provide a biological basis for the natural human instinct to self-medicate. And they also define a molecular mechanism that may be a critical contributor to the uh, co-occurrence that happens with alcohol misuse and major depression. Well, so what I think is the significant take-home point of the article is that it is interesting to find that alcohol, of all things, will bring about some of the same biochemical changes in the brain in terms of rapid relief of depression as does ketamine. And it may shed some light on the tendency to self-medicate with alcohol. I'm not sure how valuable that is. I think it's fairly self-evident that someone in a severely adverse mental state will do anything they can to uh, relieve that, including something self-destructive like drinking. But again, uh, to me, it points out that ketamine is just another in a long line of mind-altering drugs that may be administered to depressed patients that may relieve their symptoms tempor temporarily, uh, but not give them lasting relief, not address the underlying cause of the depression, and not make sure that it won't come back 
and worst of all, can have toxic side effects. Uh, so basic bottom line, even alcohol can do what ketamine does, and it, it's still, I think, way past time to temper this excessive and unbridled enthusiasm about using ketamine to treat depression. Um, instead of using it, again, we need to learn more about why and how it works and use that knowledge to develop other and safer and better treatments. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today. Perhaps you've heard the old saying, a happy wife is a happy life, right? Well, it turns out that one research study found that having a happy spouse could be good for your health. The study reveals a unique social link between happiness and health among older adults. And I suspect that this wouldn't necessarily apply to just men with happy wives. So let's take a look at the study. Again, having a happy spouse may be related to better health, at least among middle-aged and older adults, according to a new study published by the American Psychological Association. In a nationally representative study of 1,981 middle-aged heterosexual couples, researchers found that people with happy spouses were much more likely to report better health over time. This occurred above and beyond the person's own happiness. The study was published in the American Psychological Association journal Health Psychology. The finding significantly broadens assumptions about the relationship between happiness and health, suggesting a unique social link. Simply having a happy partner may enhance health as much as striving to be happy oneself. Previous research suggests happy people are generally healthy people. But there are three at least three potential reasons why having a happy partner might enhance a person's health irrespective of one's own happiness. One, happy partners likely provide stronger social support, such as caretaking, as compared to unhappy partners who are more likely to be focused on their own stressors. Happy partners may get unhappy people involved with activities and environments that promote good health, such as maintaining regular sleep cycles, eating nutritious food, and exercising. And lastly, being with a happy partner should make a person's life easier, even if not explicitly happier. Simply knowing that one's partner is satisfied with his or her individual circumstances may temper a person's need to seek self-destructive outlets, such as drinking or drugs, and may more generally offer contentment in ways that afford health benefits down the road. 
the study examined the survey information of couples from the ages of 50 to 94, including happiness, self-rated health, and physical activity over a six-year period. And as far as any gender difference, the results showed no difference between husbands and wives in the study. We'll take another commercial break and come back with more on the results. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're currently discussing a scientific take on the old expression, a happy wife is a happy life. As I said right before the break, though, the study found that the connection between having a happy spouse and being in better health was the same for husbands and wives, not only for the husbands. Now, let's take a look at the study results. First of all, the demographics will tell you the generalizability is limited. Um, I already mentioned before that almost all of the almost 2,000 couples, well, no, actually all of them were heterosexual couples for one thing. 84% were white, uh, only 8% African American, only 6% Hispanic. Uh, so, again, um, a very skewed study demographically, uh, but nonetheless, perhaps um, the results would extend to same-sex couples and uh, 
a more ethnically diverse group. The participants answered questions about their health, including level of physical impairment, chronic illnesses, and level of physical activity, as well as any concerns they had regarding their spouse's health. Participants rated their own happiness and life satisfaction. Okay, well, there you go. Um, it, uh, it isn't only that your life will be more peaceful and quiet and calm and satisfying, but your health will be better if you uh, have a happy spouse. So it would behoove you to do what you can to see that that is the case. All right. Next up on psychiatry today. The interface between technology and mental health is ever-growing. We see this in lots of different areas. Uh, we see this in sensors being able to pick up signals from the brain and allowing disabled people to move a cursor on a computer screen so they can communicate or write or type. And we see this same technology being applied to allow people who are victims of paralysis to be able to move their limbs when their uh, limbs are attached to special electronically controlled uh, apparatus. And we have heard that in the future there will be implantable chips uh, that can monitor certain signals from the brain and either tell us certain things about the person or allow that person to do certain things and have it to be monitored. Pretty, pretty scary things. But here's something that may be somewhat closer to actually being coming uh, something in uh, everyday life. This device can detect your emotions using wireless signals. It can measure your heart breath, sorry, your heartbeat and your breathing rate. And using information like that, the device can tell if you're excited, happy, angry, or sad. And this comes to us from scientists at MIT. As many a relationship book can tell you, understanding someone else's emotions can be a difficult task. Facial expressions aren't always reliable. A smile can conceal frustration, while a poker face might mask a winning hand. But what if technology could tell us how someone is really feeling? Researchers from MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory have developed EQ Radio, a device then that can detect a person's, person's emotions using wireless signals. By measuring subtle changes in breathing and heart rhythms, EQ Radio is apparently 87% accurate at detecting if a person is excited, happy, angry, or sad, and can do so without on-body sensors. 
MIT professor and project lead Dina Katavi envisions the system being used in entertainment, consumer behavior, and healthcare. Film studios and ad agencies could test viewers' reactions in real time, while smart homes could use information about your mood to adjust the heating or suggest that you get some fresh air. That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? How would you like to, your house to say, hey, you don't seem to be in too good a mood today. Why don't you get outside and get some fresh air? Do you want your house to be that smart? Well, <clears throat> be that as it may, let's uh, continue to see what this research is about. The wireless signals can capture information about human behavior that is not always visible to the naked eye. This could pave the way for future technologies that could help monitor and diagnose conditions like depression and anxiety. EQ Radio builds on efforts to use wireless technology for measuring human behaviors such as breathing and falling. Using wireless signals reflected off people's bodies, the device measures heartbeats as accurately as an EKG monitor with a margin of error of approximately 0.3%. It then studies the waveforms within each heartbeat to match a person's behavior to how they previously acted in one of the four emotion states. The research team will present the work next month at the Association of Computing Machineries International Conference on Mobile Computing and Networking, otherwise known as MOBICOM. Existing emotion detection methods rely on audiovisual cues or on-body sensors, but there are downsides to both techniques. Facial expressions are notoriously unreliable. Not everyone <clears throat> wears their emotions on their sleeves. While on-body sensors such as chest bands and EKG monitors are at best inconvenient to wear and also become inaccurate if they change position over time. EQ Radio instead sends wireless signals that reflect off of a person's body and back to the device. Its beat extraction algorithms break the reflections into individual heartbeats and analyze the small variations in heartbeat intervals to determine their levels of arousal and positive affect. These measurements are what allow EQ radio to detect emotion. For example, a person whose signals correlate to low arousal and negative affect is more likely to be tagged as sad, while someone whose signals correlate to high arousal and positive affect would likely be tagged as excited. The exact correlations vary from person to person, but are consistent enough that EQ radio could detect emotions with 70% accuracy, 
even when it hadn't previously measured the target person's heartbeat. Just by knowing how people breathe and how their hearts beat in different emotional states, they can look at a random person's heartbeat and reliably detect their emotions. For the experiments, subjects used videos or music to recall a series of memories that each evoked one of the four emotions, as well as a no-emotion baseline. So these were used to calibrate the machine, as it were, trained just on those five sets of two-minute videos EQ Radio could then accurately classify the person's behavior among the four emotions a stunning 87% of the time. Compared with Microsoft's vision-based emotion API, which focuses on facial expressions, EQ Radio was found to be significantly more accurate in detecting joy, sadness, and anger. The two systems performed similarly with neutral emotions, since a face's absence of emotion is generally easier to detect than its presence. One of the MIT team's toughest challenges was to tune out irrelevant data. In order to get individual heartbeats, for example, the team had to dampen the breathing, since the distance that a person's chest moves from breathing is much greater than the distance that their heart moves to beat. To do so, the team focused on wireless signals that are based on acceleration rather than distance traveled, since the rise and fall of the chest with each breath tends to be much more consistent and therefore have a lower acceleration than the motion of the heartbeat. Although the focus on emotion detection meant analyzing the time between heartbeats, the team says that the algorithm's ability to capture the heartbeat's entire waveform means that in the future it could be used for non-invasive health monitoring and diagnostic settings. By recovering measurements of the heart valves actually opening and closing at a millisecond time scale, this system can literally detect if someone's heart skips a beat. This opens up the possibility of learning more about conditions like cardiac arrhythmias and exploring potentially other medical applications. And that's really where I hope this research goes. I would hate to think that advertisers and uh, people <clears throat> wanting to market movies or other things would exploit this data uh, to better tailor their products to sell more of them. Um, and likewise, it would also not be good to uh, use it uh, to spy on people in some ways. Anyway, we have a commercial break, and we'll be right back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? 
Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the latest mental health-related news. A few more thoughts about the study we were talking about before the break. Uh, You'll recall this is the MIT study with a device called EQ Radio, which wirelessly picks up signals from a subject's body regarding their heart rate and breathing rate to draw conclusions about their emotional state. And uh, using this data, again, obtained wirelessly without any body sensors or any connections, if the person is excited, happy, angry, or sad. Um, Anytime you're talking about wirelessly monitoring someone's emotional state, uh, obviously this immediately raises very, very significant privacy concerns. And there's a significant creep factor involved in some uh, device being able to wirelessly tell what kind of mood you're in. And we touched a little bit on how uh, this potentially could be exploited in an undesirable way, um, uh, using our mood state to uh, potentially influence us to buy products or to tailor products toward us. Um, But I thought of something else as I was first reading this article and decided to present it to you on tonight's podcast, that I admit what I'm proposing would have very, very severe privacy concerns. And uh, so I want to issue that disclaimer very strongly before I even suggest this. 
However, um, I, I do think that it raises the discussion when you're talking about such a device. The thought that I had is, I mean, even though in this case the scientists were using this on individuals who were in the study and they were uh, just talking about calibrating the machine, as it were, and um, setting it to be able to uh, predetermine what someone's normal uh, heart rate and breathing rate were and then uh, calibrated for the other states, excitement, happiness, sadness, or anger, based on artificially evoking these feelings uh, using music or images or whatever the subject uh, felt was necessary. What if the machine could be calibrated to just sort of broadly look at these types of emotional states uh, not knowing the specific parameters for all the people that was around it when it was in use, this would admittedly be casting a much wider net. In other words, the accuracy wouldn't be as much because it wouldn't be pre-calibrated. It would just be a detector. And the thought that I have is improving security. Um, you know, in this day and age, we are not safe when we go to a restaurant, a movie theater, a shopping mall, an airport, a concert hall, etc., etc. So what if there was a way that this technology could be adapted to monitor an environment for someone in a highly agitated state, as you would expect them to be, before they're about to commit a crime such as a shooting or a suicide bombing or what have you. Uh, again, now I grant you there's myriad problems with this, so please don't think that um, I think this is something that would necessarily be good or right or correct. Uh, for one thing, it again raises very, very severe privacy concerns. Uh, and for another, who's to say that someone who's going to commit an act like that is necessarily going to be in any kind of state of agitation? Indeed, just as the study itself acknowledged that when it comes to uh, devices that look at facial expressions, those aren't always particularly accurate. Similarly, while it's hard to believe there are those who are about to commit an atrocity like that who would be perfectly calm and at peace, uh, especially if they're religious fanatics who, who think that they're going to meet a reward in the afterlife when they're about to commit whatever act they're going to do. So again, I acknowledge there's lots and lots of really severe problems with this, but uh, I just think if you're talking about, well, Here's a device that may wirelessly detect different emotional states. Um, I think the issue has to be raised and has to be discussed, whether or not it's practical, whether or not it would be legal uh, in, in, in any sense as far as privacy concerns. All right, well...
Next up on Psychiatry Today. Let's turn our discussion to the feeling of loneliness. Uh, loneliness is a feeling that may or may not be accompanied by depression. Uh, it is not the case that everyone who is lonely is depressed. But nonetheless, it is something that is linked to poor mental health and even poor physical health as well. And it turns out that loneliness is even a more accurate predictor of early death than is obesity. But is loneliness a heritable trait? Is there a genetic basis for it? Are there genes which cause someone to feel lonely? Well, to better understand who is at risk for loneliness, again, and since it's a better predictor of early death and obesity, researchers at the University of California at San Diego School of Medicine conducted the first genome-wide association study for loneliness as a lifelong trait, not a temporary state. Now, let me explain what a genome-wide association study is. Uh, when you do a study like that, you're looking at the entire human genome and you're trying to scan the entire thing uh, for certain characteristics that appear more often in people who tend to be lonely than those who don't. Um, even though it's taking a lot less time and expense to go through the human genome now than it used to, this is still quite an extensive and an exhaustive process. These scientists discovered that the risk for feeling lonely is partially due to genetics, but environment plays a bigger role. The study of more than 10,000 people, which was published on September the 15th in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology, also found that genetic risk for loneliness is associated with what is called neuroticism, and depressive symptoms. Now, the term neuroticism really, to me, is both an outdated and pejorative term, uh, but nonetheless, it is still used in the scientific literature, believe it or not. And it refers to people who uh, tend to have certain personality characteristics, uh, tend to be um, anxious and uh, uh, tend to not be as uh, socially outgoing. Now, <clears throat> the research shows that not everyone perceives loneliness in the same way. Uh, but the just as physical pain alerts us to potential tissue damage and motivates us to take care of our physical bodies, loneliness triggered by a discrepancy between an individual's preferred and actual social relations is part of a biological warning system that has evolved to alert us of threats or damage to our social bodies. For two people with the same number of close friends and family, one might see their social structure as adequate, while the other doesn't. And that's what is meant by genetic predisposition to loneliness. But why, genetically speaking, 
One person is more likely than another to feel lonely even in the same situation. The heritability of loneliness has been examined before in twins and other studies of both children and adults. From these, researchers estimated that 37 to 55 percent of loneliness is determined by genetics. Previous studies also tried to pinpoint specific genes that contribute to loneliness, focusing on genes related to neurotransmitters such as dopamine and serotonin, or other cellular systems associated with human attachment, such as oxytocin. That's the uh, feel-good social affiliation hormone. But these studies mostly relied on small sample sizes. In this latest research, they used a much larger sample size, looking at genetic and health information from almost 11,000 people aged 50 and older. <clears throat> As part of the study, Participants answered three well-established questions that measure loneliness. The survey doesn't use the word lonely, since people are reluctant to report feeling that way. So the questions are, how often do you feel that you lack companionship? How often do you feel left out? And how often do you feel isolated from others? And they took into account gender, age, and marital status, as married people tend to be less lonely than unmarried people, as you might expect. Here's what the researchers found. Loneliness, the tendency to feel lonely over a lifetime, rather than just occasionally due to circumstance, is a modestly heritable trait. 14 to 20 percent, sorry, 14 to 27 percent genetic, as compared to the previous estimates of 37 to 55 percent. They also determined that loneliness tends to be co-inherited with neuroticism, or long-term negative emotional state, and a scale of depressive symptoms. In contrast to previous studies, they didn't find loneliness to be associated with variations in specific candidate genes, such as those that encode dopamine or oxytocin. They're now working to find a genetic predictor to allow researchers to gain additional insights into the molecular mechanisms that influence loneliness. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Um, not going to have a new podcast next week. We'll be back with a new one in two weeks. So until then, I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free two weeks. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's web radio.